Good morning, College Park. Today's reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Again, Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight is the time that our church prays together, and our focal point this evening will be to pray for the folks who are heading off to the incubator for our Fishers campus. Pray for that whole initiative. I'm pleased to tell you we have 142 adults and 80 kids who have already signed up for that initiative. So there's a momentum that's building for that. So if you're part of that initiative, we'd love to have you come and pray. We'd love to have the church just pray. Pray for more people to sign up, for clarity as to where that group would meet, for uh, volunteers, as Eric mentioned, all of those things. So we'll meet uh, tonight to pray. We do have a slight time change on the prayer meeting uh, tonight. We're going to be meeting at 5 o'clock and not 6. We're just concerned that you get home when it's not too dark out. And so <laughs> we're just, just out of our affection for you, we are just going to make that slight change in adjustment. So... Uh, as well, if you have particular prayer needs tonight, we'd love to have you come. There'll be a time for us just to pray over you with uh, urgent requests. So uh, if you want to connect with people and feel part of the church, it's a great time to come. Uh, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So grateful for our partner with the Life Centers and for uh, uh, just an army of people in our church who are a part of that ministry. As well, our partnership with Safe Families. We have some 40 families who are a part of a foster care program. Um, we, Our church family had 750 days this last year of uh, provided care for children and families in need. We believe in life, want to support life, both before birth and after birth. So if you are a part of Life Center's ministry in any way, either you volunteer your time or you serve on the board or you give to Susan Butler who does her walk for life or uh, any of those things, uh, we'd like to have you stand. If you're part of Safe Families, please stand as well so we can just pray over you and thank God for you. So if that represents you, would you please stand if you're a part of those ministries? Very good. And just remain standing. We'd like to pray for you. Yeah. So please just remain standing as I pray for you. Father, thank you for these who have been a part of um, the advocacy of life in our community and for those who are a part of uh, safe families and 
the advocacy of help in the midst of dark moments in life. And we just, we thank you for life and we, we want to be champions of it. And so we ask for continued success in the legislature, continued success in the counseling room, continued success in life's most darkest moments that you would let the church be a leading voice and a leading influence in this arena. So thank you for these brothers and sisters who are part of that. Lord, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and our world and our nation needs reconciliation so deep at so many levels. Thank you that the blood of Christ uh, is the bridge between people from all walks of life, and we would pray for greater understanding between us, greater diversity within our own church, a greater love for people who don't look like us or come from the same background, and that the blood of Jesus would be the unifying factor for people from all walks of life. So would you please make that a reality? And now use Romans 8 to help us to think correctly about how to live in a broken, racist, life-hating world filled with sin and temptations. We need your grace. So come now, please, Holy Spirit, and be our helper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles if you're not there already, and let's go to Romans 8. Two weeks ago, we began our short series here in the book of Romans chapter 8, looking at this idea of this chapter being the summit of all the book of Romans. I suggested to you that from this summit perspective, you can see both where we've come and also where we can go. I suggested to you that from the summit of Romans chapter 8, you can see the beauty of what Romans is all about. You can see the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of no condemnation, the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. And that this beautiful image is meant to both wow you, and then it's meant to woo you. It's not meant just for something for you to behold. It's meant for something for you to become. In other words, this text talks about the beauty of who a follower of Jesus Christ is, and it calls us to make that work by the Spirit's help. In other words... Those who are spiritually alive and those who are sovereignly adopted are able to defeat sin. I want you leaving today with a greater burning passion to take particular sins in your life and to diminish them, reduce them, kill them, and say to them, no more. I am done. Imagine what that could be like. That's my prayer from this text. Imagine what 2015 could be like if, if a particular sin in your life was no longer there. Can you think of one? Maybe anger, bitterness, greed, lust, envy. If you're like, I can't think of one. Pride. You just, just <laughs> fill in the blank. We all, we all have them. And imagine what 2015 could be like if your testimony is something like this. Man, I was stuck. I was trapped. I was, had these sins in my life, and God met me in Romans 8. And my life today is so different because of this chapter. I'm telling you, this chapter and the words in this chapter, like adoption and kill and glorify, and so then, those words have life in them. And my hope is that you see that and experience that today. Because what Paul is giving us here is a vision of what is new. 
He's trying to show us where we could go with these truths. And where we are supposed to go with Romans 8 is toward greater levels of obedience. The hallmark of a life in the Spirit is obedience. In other words, Christianity, friends, works. And if yours doesn't work, there's a problem. It doesn't work perfectly, but it works. So there's three aspects today of this newness that I want to talk about today. A new power, a new relationship, and a new promise or a new future. First, a new power, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Notice that verse 12 begins with two little words, so then. In other words, what's happening here in verse 12 is that it's the implication, again, of verses 9 to 11. So Paul is giving us biblical truths that are not like marbles in a bowl, you know, picking out one at a time. They're a string of pearls. They're all linked together. He just keeps walking us week by week by week into significant truths. And in some cases, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And the implications of what we saw last week, which namely was that all believers are in the Spirit, that the Spirit links us to belonging to Christ, that the Spirit gives life to our dead bodies even now, and that the same spiritual power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also raise those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that that implication of the centrality of the Spirit has sweeping implications as it relates to how we live so this has to work this has to work in an hour it has to work tomorrow verse 12 starts with something that's negative he says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh so he begins by this implication of telling believers what they are not and Let me just emphasize to you that what Paul's referring to here is to those who have received Christ as their Savior. They become a Christian. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm just thrilled that you're here. You need to know what I'm talking about today, though, doesn't apply to you unless you cross the line and become a follower of Jesus, like you saw in the, in the baptismal testimonies and in, in that moment. And you, you cross the line and become a follower of Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that I could present today to you the beauty of what it means to be a Christ follower so you could be wowed by it and you would be wooed by the Spirit. And just so you know, if there's this strange inkling within your heart that says, I want to believe that, I want to do that, that's not you. That is the Spirit himself moving. It's a beautiful thing. He says that believers are not debtors to the flesh. What does that mean? It means that no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus has been set and sealed over these believers, according to chapter 8 and verse 1. And as a result, there's something different about them in terms of their obligation to the flesh. They no longer have to listen to the flesh. They no longer have to obey the flesh. They no longer have to live in the flesh. That a believer has been delivered from the realm of sin and flesh Because the debt of sin has been paid by the finished work of Christ. And as a result, their relationship with the flesh, with that desire that's wrong, with the inklings to be tempted, is miraculously changed. It's not completely obliterated, but their relationship with the flesh is fundamentally different. We are not debtors to the flesh. That means that for some of you, the one thing you need to understand today in this text is this. You can, if you're a follower, of Jesus not do all the things that you think you have to do. 
All the sin that you feel like, I, I just, I, I can't stop, I can't stop, I can't stop. I can't. This text says, no, 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 you, you, you can. You're just not incorporating the power of the Spirit. Now, it seems that something is missing in verse 12 because it says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. It seems like it ought to say then, but we are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. It seems like that's how the text should go, but it doesn't go like that. And it doesn't go like that for a very important reason. And it's for this reason. That a believer's relationship with their flesh is not the same as their relationship with the Spirit. In other words, we are not in the Bible ever described as being debtors to the Spirit. And the reason is this, is that while the Spirit has conquered the flesh, it's not the same kind of category. And so to say that we were a debtor to the Spirit would be to compromise the very essence of what it means to be in the Spirit. So we don't relate to the Spirit in the same kind of way that we related to the flesh. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but essentially it means this, that when it comes to the life in the Spirit, we have a different relationship with the Spirit than we even had with the flesh. It's not even the same kind of relationship. There's a promise in verse 13 That then flows out of this. So if there's a total different relationship with this flesh, as it relates to this life in the Spirit, what are the implications of that? And then verse 13 gives it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That means ultimate death, spiritual death, eschatological death. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that means eschatological life. That means future life. That means eternal life. And Paul isn't talking about a works-based salvation, but what he is saying is this, that if you are in the category of being in Christ, if you are marked by being part of God's family, if you are in the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, and if you will live in the future, then in between this eschatological future and this in-the-Spirit reality, there's a third category, which means that you put to death the deeds of the body. Now this is important because often we have this idea that those who are to put to death the deeds of the body are are either those who are super spiritual or those who are super messed up. Who needs to put to death the deeds of the body? Well, that's what super spiritual people do, or that's what people who are seriously addicted need to do. And yet what Paul identifies here is, no, no, that's not a right, a right way to think about the Christian life. Essentially what he's saying here is that to kill the deeds of the body, to mortify the flesh, is not an unusual pattern for the believer. It is the normal pattern for the believer. Our problem is we forget that. We play with our little sin issues. We treat them as if they are domesticated. And, oh, then when they reap their ugly consequences, no, that's when we get serious about our sin. All the while along, we've been petting it and taking care of it and feeding it. And then we wondered, how did this beast get in my home? Well, you let it grow and it became large. The idea is that killing sin is not supposed to be something that is unusual or is desperate or somehow something that you do because it's remedial or because now you got to fix everything because it's broken. That killing the flesh or killing the deeds of the body or mortifying sin is supposed to be the normal part of what it means to follow Jesus. So my question is this. So what's your target right now? 
For some of you, the reason that your life is so dangerous at present is because you just kind of driven and tossed by the wind. You don't have a target in terms of I'm dealing with this particular sin issue and I have this thing on my mind and this is what I'm... So you're, you're just listless. So you hang around the right people, you get in a small group full of really passionate followers of Jesus, you're like all over it. Then four hours later you hang out with some other people who are not and you're all done with it. See... The, the, the idea is that there's a new power of the Spirit that you have with you, and it's not just something that's available to you. Rather, it is who you are, and it's what you already possess. And to follow a pathway of sin consistently over the course of your lifetime, and to see no victory in that issue, and to give yourself over to that particular sin, is generally a pretty good indication that you are not a true believer in Jesus Christ. Which is why we as a church practice church discipline. You can't claim to be a member of this church or a follower of Jesus and just continue in wanted, unrepentant sin for all of your life and then stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. If you are, the Bible says, then show me that your faith works. Now, you can motivate that by getting in someone's grill, like I just did. Or you can woo them and say, let me show you what this is like. Let me, let me show you this new land. Take you up to the summit and to show you. Look, look, look at what your life could be like. That's what Paul does. Now, the reason this is important, church, is for two reasons. First, it's imperative that we come to the difference and understand the difference between the power of the flesh and the power of the spirit because too often we give the flesh or our former identity way too much power. We treat our past we treat our personality type, we, we treat um, our former identity, our former struggles, our upbringing, our environment, our parents, our culture, as if they are on equal footing with the Spirit's power, and they are not. The problem is, is that often we, we say things like, well, I can't change because of, and then fill in the blank, your past, your background, this, this is who I am. And then what you do when you say that is you're actually elevating this thing of the flesh or this personality type or this dynamic of your upbringing to be parallel with the spirit if you excuse for example sarcasm or you don't fight against it because you think well that's just my personality or it's how i grew up at least i'm better than my parents or something else what you're really saying is that the ties of the flesh are stronger than the power of the spirit and that just is fundamentally not true And some of you are stuck in that. And the the pathway to freedom for you is for you to change your mindset as it relates to the flesh and the spirit. The second reason is that understanding this power is very much related to our vision of what it means to be in the spirit. So killing the flesh or killing sin is a condition of what it means to be in the spirit. It's a part of it. It's central to it. And therefore, it is a characteristic pattern in people's lives who are in the spirit that they put to death the deeds of the body in other words obedience is the hallmark of the spirit's work the spirit living in us was meant to help us to put to death the deeds of the body and so my question to you would just be this how long has it been since you've seen a particular sin in your life become less controlling in your life for some of you it's been a long time and that's why your bible reading is flat And worship for you seems mundane. And you have a critical spirit. The reality is the problem is the people around you. It's it's not the the worship. 
You may even think this sermon is boring, and I would tell you, it's not me. I am interesting. You know what I mean. What I mean by that is you have all these categories, and the real problem is you have experienced, have not experienced life in a long time. What does it mean to put something to death? I've struggled for years understanding that idea because it sounds so incredibly definitive, doesn't it? Put it to death. It's like that means it's gone, it's dead, it's not getting up anymore. And that doesn't feel like that's my experience as a Christian or as a pastor. 2008, after our family was called here, I preached my first sermon at College Park. It was in the book of Colossians. Just by curiosity, how many of you were here during that time? Okay, a number of you. Do you remember anything that I said during that time? Oh, I hope so. Maybe just one thing, because this one thing was incredibly helpful for me, and that is that when we came to Colossians 3, 5, where it says to put to death what is earthly in you, we really worked hard on that word, that phrase. And here's what we came to understand, and for me it was so incredibly helpful. In Colossians 3, that word that's used is different than Romans 8. We'll come back to that in a moment. But in Colossians 3, that word is the Greek word nekru, and it means that something is as good as dead. It's used in Romans 4.18 in reference to Abraham, how in his old age, in regards to his ability to conceive a child, although he was alive, he considered himself to be as good as dead. So the idea is that something, something could be alive, and yet it could be viewed as as good as dead. And that was incredibly helpful as it relates to sin and fighting it for me, because what it means is this, that it means that sin being fought does not mean that sin is eradicated or that temptations are removed. It simply means that I find a way to treat those sin issues as if they are good as dead. What's more, the word was used by physicians in the ancient Near East to describe atrophy, and that was incredibly helpful. Because you know what atrophy is, right? Atrophy is if you don't use your arm very much, then it it becomes weaker. If you go and squeeze a guy's arm and he's got some guns, he's got those guns because he worked at it. You ain't got guns because you ain't working at it. That's that's the point, right? The more you lift, right, the stronger that muscle becomes and, and, and the larger it becomes because of use. If you don't use it, it will become smaller and weaker. And, and that was really helpful for me because it, I could see it true in my own life and the life of other people that temptation looks like, wow, I wonder if I could pick up that weight. And so I give into it and I grab the weight and I, I, I lift it and I'm like, mm, man, it's strong. And then I think, hmm, I just lifted 30 pounds. What if I could do 35 and then 40, and 50, 60. And some of you, that's exactly what's happening. You're like, you started small, little 20-pound weight, and before you knew it, you were trying to crank up 50-pound sin weights because once is never enough. You always wonder, could I do a little bit more? And the key to atrophy from a scriptural standpoint is realizing that this arm's always going to be with me. My tendency towards temptations and sin, they're always going to be there, but I can choose to not strengthen that muscle. I can intentionally create a situation where that muscle atrophies. How does that relate to Romans 8? Romans 8.13 is the intentional side of it. Romans 8.13 is more definitive. It's a different Greek word, and the idea is that it means to condemn something, to declare it to, to be... Uh, guilty and to declare it to be punished by death. So the nuance in verse 13... That's why I say intentional atrophy. The nuance is, is there's a new power, there's a new reality within me whereby I can intentionally decide that sin doesn't hold me. 
So to put to death the deeds of the body is then a decisive decision where I cooperate with the Spirit, I live out my position in power under the authority of the Holy Spirit, I intentionally try to not strengthen the flesh, and I say, in accordance with Romans chapter 8, that sin, you are dead to me. Because of the power of the Spirit, we can intentionally eclipse the power of the flesh with the power of the Spirit. If you're around me often or hear me, I love the word eclipse. I think it's helpful at so many levels. So what does eclipsing sin look like in terms of a strategy? Let me give you what my strategy is in dealing with sin under the acronym of eclipse. E, you expose the lie of sin and temptation. You call it out for what it is. That's a lie, and I'm going to expose it. C, you claim the promise of God's word to counteract the lie. You trumpet with another more compelling promise. L, you live by faith, meaning you believe and act on the promise, listen to me very carefully, even before you feel it to be true. Some of you are waiting until your silly little feelings come along to decide that you're going to obey. And you need to tell your feelings to be quiet, sit down, because the Spirit's in control, and we're going to act on this because we believe it to be true, even though we may not feel it to be true. Next, I ingest the word. You want to take off quickly? Then find ways to fast from the things that are giving you negative influence and just ingest the word. Let it be what you listen to. Let it be what you read. Let it be what you memorize. You get the word in. You get the promises claimed. You're able to defeat sin in a new way. P, pray for help. You cry out to God. We have the spirit. We say to the Lord, would you help me? You shun future temptations. Listen to me. Don't be an idiot. I mean that with all the love that I have in my heart for you. But I am serious. Do not be an idiot. You know where you're going to be tempted. So why are you going to that channel? You know you're tempted. Why is that thing on your on your iPad? You know you're tempted. Why are you hanging out talking to that person? You know you're going to be tempted. Don't go to that part of town. You know you're going to be tempted. Do not spend your money on that. Don't be an idiot. That's the point. Shun temptation. If you know you got burned, then why are you going back? The Bible says in Proverbs, you're an idiot if you go back. E. Engage others. Ask for prayer. Seek counsel. Ask them to help you. Say, I need you to pray for me. Would you just help me in this regard? So that's how you eclipse the power of the flesh with the power of the Spirit. All of these things, these things flow from a heart that has been set on new affections because the Spirit has empowered new thinkings because of a new category, because there's a new life, and as a result, we can go after sin with a new level of vigor. Thomas Chalmers, Scottish pastor in the 1800s, had one sermon that he's famous for. And oh, that every guy who serves in ministry at least has one sermon that he's famous for. The title of it was this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The sermon was simply that you cannot destroy the love of the world by merely demonstrating its vanity or its emptiness. If you're a parent, listen to me very carefully. What Chalmers is saying is you cannot just simply warn your children that the world is bad. You have to show them what is good. Or to put it in the way of a friend of mine, the power of no is in a stronger yes. 
You have to show them. You have to show those who were discipling. You have to show counselees. You have to show people in our small group. What's the yes? What's the yes? What's the yes? And Romans 8, friends, is the yes. That's the point. Here's what Chalmers said. But what cannot be thus destroyed, meaning the world, and its desire may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made way to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. He means that you can develop, God helping you, a new affection. A couple years ago, I was watching a documentary on sugar. And um, they asked you to do an experiment at home. So figure how many spoonfuls of sugar you consume just in your beverages. At the time, I was drinking coffee with fair amount of sugar in it, so I figured out how many cups of coffee that I was drinking, and then took every spoonful of sugar that I would have put in those cups of coffee, I put it into a small glass, and the glass got really full of sugar, and I realized, my goodness, that's a lot of sugar intake, so I cut sugar from my coffee, and for the first two weeks, it was disgusting, I hated it, it was, ugh, it was awful, and yet, about week three, I was like, this is actually pretty good, week four, I was all in, now if I pick up other people's in my family's life who like sugar in their coffee, it's absolutely disgusting. I drink it, I'm like, ah, it's so sweet. It's awful. How can you drink this stuff, right? What's happened is I've created a new appetite, created a new affection, a new love, a a, a new yearning. And so too, the spirit of the risen Christ is available to create new affections with us. And that's the vision of what I want you to think about. What if not just these sins in your life could be somehow uh, reduced, but what if there could be new affections that could replace them so that you're no longer even drawn to these things, or at least no longer failing as often as you are. That's the vision. And that's why the spirit's been given because there's a new power. Here's the second thing. There's also a new relationship. Paul now goes deeper. He changes just from some sort of legal metaphor. He now talks about a family metaphor, particularly the relationship between a father and a son. Verse 14 is the transition in this metaphor. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's that's something new. So not only is there no condemnation over you, not only are you led by the Spirit, not only do you walk by the Spirit, but if you're a follower of Jesus, now you are also a son of God. And he changes the metaphor in order to demonstrate that the beauty of God's grace is not just that we're no longer punished for our sins, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But part of the beauty of God's grace is that we have become a part of God's family. So... He aims to provide a new motivation here. Not just legally, I've been set free, but now affection and I love you. So different. To be a son, to be a child of God is a word that's used all over the Old Testament, particularly of Israel, in God's affection for that people. To be in Christ, to be in in the Spirit is now to be a part of that family, to be God's children. Paul then drives it even further in verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The point in verse 15 is that a believer's relationship is 
radically different. And so he starts first by what it's no longer about. That's why he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Meaning that the hope of a new relationship with God through Christ is no longer based upon performance or the law. That, that, old, that old life was filled with failure and with impotence. And what he says is that old way of living under fear and judgment and performance, that way is not coming back. And part of the beauty of what he has in mind here is that now not only is the law of sin and the power of sin broken, but God has forever changed his relationship with us that in effect you are God's son and therefore everything about how you relate to him is different even even though you still have a past. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Imagine if you're a child who's lived in a foster home and that foster home was not great. There's a lot of good foster homes. There's some that aren't so great. And imagine this negative foster home that you lived in. The mom of that house was really particular about her plates. And who knew what it is or what it is about her plates. But whenever a plate would be broken and, and, and as you're washing dishes or if you accidentally dropped it or something like that, she would just completely just blow a gasket. And would just yell and scream, how could you break a plate? These are my special plates. Don't break plates. And so you lived in this environment where plates, I mean, you don't, you don't break them. And then in God's kindness, you come out of a foster home and you're adopted into a family and you're legally now part of this family. And the first time that you're carrying your plate to go over to the table and you drop that plate and you're standing there and your food is all over the place and the plate is broken and you know what's coming because of your past, that this mom is going to get all over your case. She's going to yell and scream at you and you start trembling because you know what's coming. And suddenly that mom comes along and says, Oh honey, are you okay? You can't even hear the words, okay? He says, let me, let me help you clean that up. And she gets down and cleans it up and takes the plate and says, hey, let me get you some new food. And there's no mention of the broken plate. And the reality is, is that this new relationship, because of your relationship with your new mom, is not only so unique and so different, but it's so removed from the past that it's not even the same kind of relationship. And the hope that Paul says here is this, that old you, that old way of living, that whole way of interacting, that way is never, ever, ever coming back. That's what's in view here. It means that God loves us with a parental love. My kids are my kids, no matter what they do. There's times I'm proud of them. There's times I'm discouraged, just like my parents were with me, like your parents were with you. But you know what? What doesn't change? What doesn't change is they're my kids. I love them no matter what. For those of you who have prodigal children, that's what makes it so hard. Is that your kids do things and you're just like, ah, it's like you're tearing my heart out. And there's a part of you, if you're honest, that you wish that you could just be so angry with them and so frustrated with how they're acting that you could actually hate them, but you can't. So you love them while you still are grieving and it makes the grieving even more painful because your heart is so big for them. If you're one of those prodigal kids and you're here, you need to know nobody loves you more than your parents. Nobody. And what you're doing right now is just killing them because they can't not love you. And yet at the same time, your life, they see it. It's a train wreck and you know it too. The crazy thing about this text is it says that parental love is deeper than painful choices. So that, does this mean that, that therefore there's no consequences if you're a follower of Jesus and you sin? No, there's consequences. I mean, if, if you're, a, if you're, a, 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 your child is hearing these messages, and they step out of line, 
And you're like, hey, sorry, it has to be disciplined for this. If your kid says, hey, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're a bad interpreter, and they haven't heard the message well. Because, no, that means that you still get to live in the house, right? Now go to your room, right? That's what it means, right? You, you still get to be a child. That's what no condemnation is. The relationship is rooted in our intimacy with God, that he has such a deep love for us. So here's how this works. It means that God has fundamentally altered our relationship with him. It means that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And no matter what we do, even in his displeasure over our sinful choices, nothing can remove us from his love listen to me the devil can't remove sin can't remove difficulty can't remove suffering can't remove that you are so rooted and grounded and adopted into the father's family there's nothing that can remove you from his love that's what this means so he uses adoption why adoption why not just say we're born you know why because a natural birth isn't radical enough that's why The birth analogy isn't powerful enough in that it doesn't have a past connected with it. So when he says that we have been given the spirit of adoption, he's saying something really special. In fact, if you're an adoptee or if you've adopted children, man, this is your text. This is your Sunday. Just glory in the beauty of what you've been a part of and savor what it means about you and your relationship with God. Every child that is adopted has a set of genes that he or her has within them that come from their birth parents. So biologically, adoptive parents are not connected to adopted children. In fact, adoption, by definition, is unnatural, yet it is gloriously beautiful. Just to say that we were born into his family wouldn't capture the essence because adoption is the establishment of a parent-child relationship not based upon natural childbirth or the will of a child, but because of a parent who loves somebody who doesn't belong to him or her genetically, but now belongs to them in a family way. See the connection? It means that someone belongs to you who by nature belonged to somebody else, and that was us. We belong to the devil, we belong to sin, we belong to the flesh, and the Father comes. And despite who we are and despite our past, he welcomed us into his family. He adopted us because we all had a past and we had a genetic difference than him. We are fundamentally not like him, and yet he brings us in. And then he says, and whereby the spirit of adoption... By whom we cry, Abba, Father. He uses a very personal term for the Father. The same word, Abba, it's an Aramaic expression that Jesus used in Mark 14. When he's praying in the garden, it means close, intimate, and personal relationship. You can think of it like, I don't know, like when you try and get your little son or daughter, when they're born, to say, Dada. I mean, was there a cold war in your house like there was in ours as to what they would say first, Dada or Mama? Right? So I'm taking the kids over in the corner. Dada, dada. Come on, dada, dada, dada. Come on. Dada, dada, dada. Right? Dada, dada. I'm trying to get my, my sons to say, my daughter to say, dada first. Right? I, I want that, 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 that beautiful thing to come out of them because it indicates relationship. You know what I'm not doing to those kids? I'm not taking them in the corner and going, okay, listen, say this with me. No. Say that. I'm not saying that. Saying, I don't take him in the corner and say, say this with me, mine. Say that, mine. Say it, mine, mine, mine. I'm not saying that. Why? Because those things have nothing to do with our relationship. That's why. And so what's coming out here of our hearts is this connection to say, God, in the midst of all the things in the world and all the desires of the flesh, you have adopted me and I belong to you. 
And you know why that's helpful? That's helpful when sin comes along and says, hey, why don't you come here? Like, no, 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 thanks. I belong to him. And temptations come and, and the devil lures us and says, I got a better way. And we're like, better way than him? No, thank you. I'm going to hang my hat with my father who's loved me and adopted me. There is a fundamental new relationship. For some of you didn't didn't have great dads. I'm sorry. I, I wish that wasn't the case. But that shouldn't forever alter how you see the personal connection of God the Father and His love for you. Because God the Father, He He's so much bigger than your dad. I'm sorry for the pain. I'm sorry for all the issues. It wasn't right. Or We all have dysfunctional homes at one level, and yours just happened to be that thing. But don't let that be the category now that you cling to and say, I can never understand God because of my Father. No, no. You're, the Spirit is so much bigger than that, and God is so much bigger than that. And so you just humbly and tearfully say, God, I need you to be a father that I've never seen. I need you to be a daddy that I never had. And to help us, notice that we don't say this alone. We've been, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, which means that the spirit helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the spirit that produces that. Which is why the next verse says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Meaning there's something special and beautiful that happens that as you engage in this and you experience it, that you see this internal witness confirming, yeah, I'm legit. I'm a follower of Jesus and the Spirit dwells within me and He's my Father and I love Him and He loves me and there's something beautiful, even something mystical that happens as the Spirit and our Spirit confirm that yes, this is real. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The minute you received Christ, this overwhelming sense of peace that flooded over you, that that was the Spirit witnessing in your soul that you are indeed a child of God. Or maybe it's the powerful realization of a truth in a song or in a scripture, and you just feel like God is speaking to you because He is. The way home from our wonderful elder retreat that we had this weekend, I'm cruising along 465. There's a great song on the on the radio. I cranked it as loud as my Honda Pilot little speakers could go, right? I'm trucking along, and I'm just praising the Lord. Beautiful blue sky day, and my tears are welling up in my eyes. My heart is just so full of gratitude for all of what God is. And this song is leading me to His presence, and it is confirming in this moment that I love you and you love me, and there is nothing more beautiful than being part of this beautiful family. God, I love being your son. Or in the midst of suffering, when you hit the wall, boom! And you're like, where did that come from? And how is that not unkind or capricious or random? It's the Spirit that says to you, you're His Son. And nothing, not even this, can change His love for you. Somehow, and we'll talk about this some way, this all is working out for a plan orchestrated by a Father who loves you so deeply, you don't even get it. It means then that obedience springs not from a fear over what this judge will say or do to me, but it springs from love. It springs from position, not performance. It springs from grace and not debt. And then third, we have this new promise about our future. In verse 17, He then wraps it up and says, If children, then heirs. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 17 talks about a promise of what is yet to come, and he uses the word heir. Unbelievable that he says heir. I mean, it's one thing to be adopted, but biologically you're not even connected to this family. And to think that you not only become an heir, but you not only become a son, but you also have become an heir, meaning everything that the father has also belongs by implication to you. He then goes even deeper. He describes what our inheritance is like. We are not only heirs or fellow heirs with Christ, but we are also heirs of God. The meaning here is more than just we receive what belongs to God. The meaning is this. That the beauty of the gospel is not only that your sins are forgiven, but at the end of the day, the ultimate inheritance is that you get God. It means that for all of eternity... You and him are in perfect harmony and you bask in the beauty of who and what he is and you in perfect intimacy and fellowship with him become everything he intended for you to be and that in a word is the word glorify which is why he ends the text with it that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, the beauty of heaven is that we share in the glory of God that we reflect his glory. We not only behold the most beautiful thing in all of the universe but there's something about that radiant display and what has happened to us in the gospel that we actually reflect in a small way and in a partial way the beauty of what god is first john 3 puts it this way beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is The hope is some way, somehow, someday, God is going to make all this right, and I will be made perfect and glorified, and that glory will be His glory. If you're walking through the text closely, you've noticed I've skipped over a word, and I want to end with it, and it's the word suffer. Because he says that we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, which means this, friends, That to be a follower of Jesus in the world means not only that you've been forgiven of your sins and that you have been adopted into God's family and that you have the spirit of life within you and that you can defeat the power of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it also means that you live in a broken world with broken bodies, with sinful people, in a world that is run and controlled by a devilish system. And as a result of that, there will be suffering in this world. And if you think that the Christian life is, I receive Christ, and then it's just like coasting, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And one of my roles, one of the roles of our pastors, is to help prepare you for the day when the bottom drops out so that you have something to cling to, something to hold on to, knowing that even this is still a part of God's providential plan for my life. And even though I don't know how it all works out, even though I can't tie all the ends together, even though I can't put all the map together, I can rest knowing that somehow, someway, my Heavenly Father has a plan for me. And this suffering, in some strange and hard and painful way, is a part of His plan for the glory of his name. And at the end of the day, I love that more than an easy life. The problem is that many believers do not think about their lives that way. They don't even know that this thing that we're in, the Christian life, it involves suffering. And so when it comes, cry your eyes out. 
and weep with those who weep and acknowledge that it's really, really hard. And then anchor your life to the fact, but this is not bad. To walk through life thinking that suffering is either unfair or not a part of the equation is to not understand how life works. I love it when they put a microphone on a head coach of a football team or a key player. I love to listen in to what they're saying. Imagine today that Andrew Luck's in the middle of a pocket, the pocket's collapsing around him, and some linebacker comes through and just pops him, and he gets hit, and he goes down hard. Imagine the microphone on as he goes back to the sidelines, and he's like, I don't understand it. Everybody's hitting me. They keep pushing me. You'd say, bro, it's football. It's a part of the game, right? It would be ridiculous to complain that people are hitting me or they hit so hard or, man, I just don't have enough room to throw the ball, right? Just make some space, right? Or to say, could you guys not come so fast, please? I got a little thing going here. I got to make some room. It's a part of the game. It's ridiculous. And yet many of us do not view the Christian life with the kind of ground rules to say, look, it's suffering. The pocket's going to collapse. It's just a matter of time. And there are going to be issues that you're going to get hit. And that's the way that the Christian life works. And yet in the midst of it all, God has sovereignly promised to sustain us that at the end of the day, the scoreboard in heaven is fixed. And Christ is exalted as King. And somehow, someway, all of this results in Him being glorified and honored. And so therefore, I can say to sin, you're the problem as to what's broken in this world, and I'm not going to give in to you because you're part of the reason why life is hard and suffering takes place. So as a statement to you, the flesh, the world, and the devil, I'm not going to serve you because I serve a risen Christ who's given me the Spirit. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because God by His Spirit is with me. That I am alive, I am adopted, I am able to defeat sin, and God helping me, I am able to make it all the way to the end, cross the finish line, grab a hold of my God and King, and say, I am home, I am done, I have finished this race. So, Father, now help us to finish the race. Brothers and sisters here who are wrestling under the pain of Wayward children, cancer, breakage of relationships among good friends, sins that just have reaped horrid consequences. Would you help us to see them all through a different lens today because we are alive, because we are adopted, and because we have power by the Spirit. So, God, woo people today who don't know you as Savior. Oh, let let today be the day that they see it and just want to run to Christ. That a few months from now, they'll be the ones in the water testifying that it was on this day in January that God found me, opened my eyes, and I received Christ. So now, God, we go into a world filled with brokenness. The safety of this moment is now coming to a close, and we have to really live. So help us. And church, before you just walk out and leave, I want to give you a moment just to talk to the Lord. He has aims and purposes in this text today. And there's a million reasons why we're all here. And so as we close the time of just silent prayer, would you just 
talk to the Lord or think, why is this text in front of me today? And when you hear the music begin to play, you can be dismissed. Or you can just linger. Or you can pray with some folks who are up here at the front. Just ask yourself, Lord, what is it that you're saying?